Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today as usual. And Jim, let us start with the good. And while the numbers aren't exactly where we'd like them to be, they're headed in the right direction when it comes to folks' thoughts on guns. We keep hearing from the Biden administration and most of the mainstream media that Americans are overwhelmingly in favor of the Democrats' gun control agenda. And while that might be true in general on things like background checks and so forth, uh, when it comes to uh, more specific things, uh, the numbers are a lot closer. And so as you point out in the corner today, the Washington Post-ABC News poll on this issue shows that 50% of Americans support enacting new laws to reduce gun violence, down from a peak of 57% after the high school shooting in uh, Florida, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. That's in uh, early 2018. And just over 4 in 10, 43% of Americans say protecting the right to own guns should be a bigger priority, up from 34% in 2018. So we know Biden has uh, had these executive orders. He wants legislation. He keeps saying things that simply aren't true about gun shows, for example, and and how you can uh, procure weapons that way. Uh, Why would anyone ever need fill in the blank, which is always... uh, spine tingling when it comes to uh, constitutional freedoms. Uh, so, Jim, uh, it, it's very close, which is uh, very different than the narrative would have us believe. And they things are headed in the right direction. No, no, it is not, Greg. <laughs> in fact, there's, there's not much to unpack here. That's a special shout out to our listeners who are members of NR Plus who have observed that apparently I answer, I begin many answers with, yeah, and there's a lot to unpack here. That having been said, there's a moderate amount to unpack here. There's two things to, to come out here. One is, yeah, they, you know, this, on the one hand, you go, oh, if, if you're pro-gun control, you could say, oh, well, you know, we're still ahead uh, 50 to 43. But I think a couple things jump out here. The first is that I put less stock in polls now than I did before the 2020 election. And we'd already seen 2016, and we'd already seen years where uh, Republicans generally did a better, a couple of points better than their uh, polling. But after heading into 2020, pollsters told us, Look, we've adjusted for it. We, we've, you know, t- uh, we, we recognize the mistakes we've made. We're calling more people. We're making sure we're not missing any particular demographics. Trust us, we've got this fixed. And then it rolls around and no, they don't have it fixed. And in fact, in certain cases like Susan Collins and Lindsey Graham, boy, they really missed it by a country mile. And so, you know, I don't know if it's quite the same dynamic when going on with general issue polling uh, rather than who are you going to vote for. But I, it, it seems safe to say that this poll is probably not overestimating things in the direction of uh, Second Amendment supporters and uh, folks on the right in generally. So it could be that the numbers are even better for the right than they are. And there's always been this disparity between uh, pro-gun rights, Second Amendment advocates who are extremely passionate about this and who vote about on this issue and are arguably more or less single issue voters who really, really care about this. And And the support for gun control being a mile wide, but an inch thick. Uh, lots of people support it, but they don't necessarily vote on it. And it's not really the issue that drives their decision making when it comes to elections and things like that. So that's one reason Democrats have not been able to capitalize on this. But I kind of look at this number. And the other thing that jumps out at me is that, you know, OK, well, it's, it's not after the 
uh, the, the Florida shooting, but we've had plenty of mass shootings since then. And in fact, we've had a couple in the last couple of weeks that have been really horrific. And the other thing that I think is kind of a, a big deal, and it's kind of gotten kind of, sometimes it's in the news and sometimes it kind of fades away. The National Rifle Association is a shadow of its former self. It's been utterly consumed by bitter infighting and ugly accusations. They declared bankruptcy. They're moving out of the state of New York. The New York State Attorney General is investigating them in something that is, I, I think you can point to a lot of, um, difficult to justify spending on the part of NRA leadership and Wayne LaPierre and folks like that. I don't know if this, and the problem is this is being run, done by extraordinarily pro-gun control, a state attorney general who's already demonized them. So there's a, there's a problem there, but overall, just look at 2020, the NRA's uh, political wing basically spent about half as much as it did in political campaigns and elections in 2016. Is that the reason Trump lost? Probably not all by itself, but if you're Trump, you wanted you know, the NRA, which had come out for you gangbusters in 2016, to be pulling out all the stops. And because of the internal problems, because of the money problems, the NRA could not be as effective as they used to be. Um, also in the meantime, you know, we've seen you know, Biden's in the Oval Office, Democrats have won the Senate by a 50-50 split. Um, and the other big dynamic I think that has changed between now and say three years ago is that we had this, this you know, burgeoning sense of corporate wokeism uh, and the idea of leaders of corporate America being more outspoken about political issues. You always had your, um, uh, your Starbucks CEOs and Tim Cook at Apple and stuff like that. But I think it's much, much more intensified over the last couple of weeks and last couple of months. Um, so you add all that up, like if you're, if you're a pro-gun control, that's, that's all really good news. There's just one big glaring challenge to all this. And that's that, you know, last year, 40 per, gun sales increased by 40% and more than 5 million Americans bought a gun for the first time. Just this January, 4.1 million guns were sold. So this is just, you know, while all of this has been going on, and I think it's pretty clear that a whole bunch of people are trying to tell you gun control is good. Gun owners are, are dangerous to others and they're reckless and all kinds of stuff. None of this really seems to have dissuaded people from buying guns. And in fact, lots of people are buying guns. I suspect probably rioting had something to do with it. I suspect crime rates probably had something to do with it. I suspect the fear that Joe Biden in a Democratic Congress could end up uh, you know, banning certain types of guns might be driving some of the, the gun sales there. So all of this is going on during this thing. So if you're the Democrats, well, all, things, all these events are happening that should be building momentum for your side. To look at a poll that says, well, actually, no, you've lost seven points over the last three years. That's not good news. And if you can't pass gun control in circumstances like this, when are you going to do it? And my suspicion, Greg, is that in fact, it will not happen. Um, and so for us, that's very much the good martini, even if there's not that much to unpack. Yeah, I don't think it happens in the next two years. I think Manchin knows he'd be politically toast if that were to happen. And that should be enough to uh, to scuttle anything. And, uh, you know, if they actually follow the rules, they'd need 60 to do it anyway. I think you're right about uh, politicians uh, pushing gun control agendas leading to increased sales. There was the joke for eight years that Barack Obama was the gun industry's best salesman. Uh, Biden pushing in this direction does the same. I think Virginia saw big sales after Ralph Northam's push for gun control legislation. We see stories now that they don't even have enough ammo for ranges now because people are buying it so quickly. Uh, and uh, sometimes that's true of the, the weapons that people commonly use uh, at ranges as well. I think this poll is also uh, a testament to the intelligence of the American people. I mean, you see the narrative that goes along with uh, a lot of these stories of these horrific shootings. I mean, the shootings, uh, unfortunately, are very real, but uh, the amount of coverage they get is usually dependent upon what we end up knowing about the perpetrator. 
I mean, this is not a gun story, but think about how much we know about the guy who rammed and killed the Capitol Police officer uh, once we found out that he was affiliated with the Nation of Islam. It just... I mean, and the same thing kind of happens with these shooters, too. If they don't fit a specific narrative, then the story doesn't get a lot of attention. But um, the American people see through this. Uh, they've, they've seen the media get more and more partisan, and I think they actually know what's going on. So good for the American people. All right, let's talk about an important sponsor for the Three Martini Lunch today, and that is Trust and Will. Uh, and look, we don't like to think about when our time will come, much of the time, but it's going to come. It's one of the certainties in life. And being ready for that and making sure your family doesn't have to wade through a mountain of questions when that time comes is also very helpful. Having everything in order is definitely uh, a gift to your family when that time comes, especially if it comes rather suddenly. And trust and will is the way to go when setting up your estate planning. For as little as $39, you can nominate guardians for your children, determine who gets all your stuff, and plan for future medical care all from the comfort of your own home. Hiring a traditional estate attorney can cost thousands of dollars, and using a one-size-fits-all template is not nearly specialized enough for you. Trust and will documents are designed by estate planning experts and customized for the state you live in. And with live customer support seven days a week, trustandwill.com's team is available to answer any questions you have while setting up your plan. And like I mentioned uh, the last time we were talking about Trust and Will, Mrs. Columbus and I took care of this uh, a couple of years ago. It's great to know that if something should happen, that this is all set up and uh, people know exactly what your wishes are. Uh, you also have, of course, uh, the medical directives. If you can't uh, speak and advocate for yourself, all of that's really, really good. And Trust and Will, of course, uh, helps you through this process. They give you a quick quiz and then they drill down on, on the details as they put this all together and they save you a ton of money compared uh, to hiring a traditional attorney. Trust and Will is the most trusted name in online estate planning, the category leader on Trustpilot, and they've helped hundreds of thousands of people protect their families, assets, and legacy. So gain peace of mind at trustandwill.com slash martini and get 10% off plus free shipping of your customized legal documents. Do not wait. Go right now. This is obviously very important. Get 10% off plus free shipping at trustandwill.com slash martini. Trustandwill.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about our bad martini now here. And uh, Joe Biden will head to the House chamber tonight for an address to the joint session of Congress. It's not a State of the Union. It's never officially the State of the Union in the first year of the administration. So that'll come next year. Uh, but while he's there, he is going to outline his latest multi-trillion dollar plan. This one's called the American Families Plan. All these things pretty much have the same title, Basically, I boil it down to COVID relief. That's not really much about COVID relief. Infrastructure that has a whole lot more than infrastructure. And this is uh, his latest deal to pay for community college and universal pre-K and uh, all sorts of other things. This one has a price tag of $1.8 trillion. So if you add that to the 2.3 for infrastructure and 1.9 for COVID relief, that's $6 trillion. And that's before we really get to the Green New Deal which a lot of it, of course, is uh, folded into the infrastructure plan and so many other big-ticket items. Jim, that's like another whole annual budget spending uh, on top of what we normally spend. So the red ink is awash here. He's going to outline tonight about why this is part of his Build Back Better uh, situation. And we can't afford not to do it, I'm sure, will be the theme uh, of this, even though we 
can't afford to do it. But uh, what do you make of Biden just piling on the massive spending plans here? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about polling in the last Martini, Greg. I do. We really would love to see not just like a poll. I almost want to see like a quiz given to Americans of what are the differences between the American Rescue Plan, the American Jobs Plan, and the American Families Plan, because they are all three separate massive pieces of legislation that have been either proposed or signed into law by the Biden administration. Now you can add them all up, and they add up to six trillion which is phenomenal. By the way, in case you're wondering, for those who don't have their, if you don't read the morning jolt today, the rescue plan is basically what we've called the pandemic relief bill. The jobs plan is what's often described as the infrastructure bill. And you can't see me making air quotes because there's a lot of stuff in there that most people would say, nah, it's not really infrastructure. And then the families plan, well, it's got a whole bunch of 1.8 trillion and more spending. Probably it's going to end up being called the education bill. It doesn't really have a common nickname yet, but basically four years of free education is what it, gets, it throws in there. All of this, by the way, is separate from the Green New Deal, and there are at minimum three different versions of the Green New Deal. There's a Green New Deal for cities, which is going to provide 1.0 trillion for quote unquote struggling municipalities. You know, by the way, if you you know enforce the law and stop crime and didn't have high taxes, maybe people would stop moving away and you wouldn't be struggling anymore. Um, the Green New Deal for public housing, which is a comparative bargain at merely 180 billion with a B, not trillion with a TR. Uh, which is all just going to decarbonize the entire public housing stock of the entire country. And oh, by the way, this is separate from the Thrive Act. I have not yet worked out the acronym uh, of this one. I suspect, like Shield, somebody <laughs> just really wanted the name, the, the acronym, to spell something out. Um, that's 15 trillion over 15 years. So technically, that is the biggest and most expensive of them. And all of them are different from what I would call Green New Deal classic. Um, and, you know, like the old joke about the turtles, it's just massive spending bills all the way down. Now, if you just take those first, three, like the other thing is, that, so Republicans are running ads and people are saying, you know, Biden says it's an infrastructure bill, but it's really the Green New Deal. And fact checkers are like, no, 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 they're totally different. And well, here's the thing. They're both massive spending bills that are allegedly designed to promote clean energy and create jobs, but are, you know, throwing gobs of money everywhere. I know as PolitiFact asked Greenpeace and Greenpeace said they were different. So that resolved it in their minds. <laughs> Look, America, if you're confused between the Green New Deal and the American Jobs Plan, it's like Dylan McDermott and Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> I mean, technically they're different, but they're, they're pretty much the same thing. Jim, just to clarify, did you say it's four years of free education or four years of re-education? Ah, uh, very, yeah, you know, it's, it's very, that F makes a big difference. Uh, <laughs> actually, you know what? Maybe it's another, um, maybe it's another Mulroney McDermott situation. Maybe it doesn't really matter. <laughs> free education is re-education. I think that they're printing up the, the, the t-shirts with that slogan up on Capitol Hill already. But anyway, let's talk about something that uh, makes us more comfortable than spending $6 trillion just to start off on this uh Democratic far-left wish list, and that is the comfort that you can find in the My Pillow, My Slippers, which I am once again wearing today, and not because I'm just pitching my slippers, but because I love these things. My Slippers took two years to develop to ensure they are the highest in quality and comfort, and right now you can get 40% off your pair of My Slippers with the promo code Martini at MyPillow.com. You know, My Slippers are durable. You can wear them all day, indoors, outdoors, wherever you like. They have beautiful leather suede. They have cozy faux fur linings, and they come in moccasin or slip-on style. They're available in a variety of colors and have a 60-day money-back guarantee, as well as a one-year limited warranty. 
There's also the three-tier cushioning system, which cushions very well and includes the MyPillow patented fill, the Comfort Memory Foam, and the patented Impact Gel. And for a limited time, MyPillow is offering 40% off my slippers. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream Bed Sheets, the MyPillow Mattress Topper, and the MyPillow Towel Sets, which I still love and use. Uh, you can only save that 40%, though, on the new My Slippers with the promo code MARTINI. So don't forget that when you call 800 874 or visit MyPillow.com today. All right, Jim, on to the crazy. And of course, last week was Earth Day. But uh, for younger generations than us, they have been facing this, we're all going to die in the next 10, 20, however many years is the current uh, talking points on the left when it comes to the the climate change uh, debate. And so when it comes to things that you and I would just consider normal, uh, it really has them vexed and stressed, and it's just really troubling to watch. The latest example of this is a short article in Vogue by a woman named Nell Frizzell, and Vogue put the title on here, Is Having a Baby in 2021 Pure Environmental Vandalism? This Nell Frizzell recently had a son, Uh, which is wonderful. You should be celebrating. The child seems to be doing great. Uh, But this is how she uh, considers this subject. Is having a child an act of environmental vandalism or an investment in the future? Is it possible to live in an, an ecologically responsible life while adding yet another person to our overstretched planet? Can I get away with it if I just never learn to drive, never get a dog, and keep wearing the same three pairs of jeans for the rest of my life? For the scientifically engaged person, there are few questions more troubling when looking at the current climate emergency than that of having a baby. Whether your body throbs to reproduce, you passively believe that it's in the cards for you one day, or you actively seek to remain child-free, the declining health of the planet cannot help but factor in your thinking. Before I got pregnant, I worried feverishly about the strain on the Earth's resources that another Western child would add. The food he ate, the nappies he wore, the electricity he would use, before he'd even start sitting up, my child would have already contributed far more to climate change than his counterpart in, say, Kerala or South Sudan. And it goes on and on, and ultimately, Nell points out, obviously, that we have to keep reproducing, and the key is to make sure that uh, each new child that uh, is brought into the world is brought up to be very, very environmentally conscious. And so, Jim, you certainly want uh, your your kids to conserve. It saves money. It's responsible. You, you, you want a clean neighborhood. But the fact that this is the type of mental anguish that young people are going through today as a result of what they're constantly fed by the media and academia and this we're all going to die unless we radically change everything about our economy and lifestyle, it's exhausting. I feel terrible for these people. Yeah, and, and there are times where God, I'm not sure where to start. One of the things that comes to mind, back on my old college newspaper, we had a crazy person who used to write letters. And sometimes she would like put in like dried flowers and, you know, periodically, this is pre-anthrax, so you wouldn't automatically assume that this is some sort of crazy deadly poison or something. But it's clearly this person had all kinds, you know, the long, scrawled, elaborate, you know, 10-page letters. And it was clearly a crazy person. Now, and I'll surprise you, we did not run those letters to the editor because the person was crazy. 
uh, because the person really did have mental problems. And this was not really an issue related to anything. There's not really much the newspaper could do for this person. Really in the end, we needed to, this person needed you know, therapy, this person needed mental health, this person might've needed to be institutionalized. This person probably very well could have needed uh, medication. You know, There's some sort of biochemically issue causing them to have paranoid thoughts or, or all kinds of you know, kooky ideas and stuff. I find a lot of that on the op-ed pages <laughs> of today, this sense where you, wow, this person has just an unbelievable amount of anxiety and neuroses and, and all kinds of problems. It was kind of interesting, a little bit of a debate back around this most recent Earth Day. I think it was in Politico, where, where somebody had observed that like, the argument amongst environmentalists who say, hey, don't litter and you know, you should give up meat on Mondays and um, uh, you know, you should buy a more environmentally conscious car or not buy a car. You know, the idea of do your individual choices make that much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. And there's some environmentalists who say, yes, of course, you know, obviously your individual one won't make the difference in saving the planet. But if you do it, you're exhibiting being a good role model and you're kind of, you know, promoting it to your friends and you kind of help this idea, gal you know, spread and gain momentum and become more popular. If you choose not to, uh, the environmental movement continues to be slogging up on hill. And then there are other environmentalists who say, well, actually, no, your issue uh, of emitting carbon is nothing compared to, say, ExxonMobil or any one of these big corporations or <clears throat> environmental celebrities on private planes or John Kerry. This interesting argument of, you know, do your individual choices really matter that much, right? If you, for some reason, decide I'm such an environmentalist, I am going to deny myself the joy of parenthood. And if you don't pick it up from the conversations, the little snippets that, you know, Greg and I give you, folks, parenthood is probably one of the greatest joys you'll ever experience in life. Has challenging days. Has days they'll drive you crazy. Has days they will, you know, not do their homework when you told them to do their homework and all kinds of stuff like that. But trust me, it's extraordinarily worth it. And when you're on your deathbed, and your era of emitting carbon is coming to an end, you'll kind of ask, what did I do with my life? Did it matter? Did I, did I spend my time wisely? If you have spent time trying to shape another one or more beautiful human beings to kind of carry on your legacy, to make their own lives, to go out and make the world a better place, God, there's nothing better in the world. So of course you should go out and have kids. By the way, if you are a bundle of neuroses and you cannot see your child as anything more than some sort of like giant carbon emitting threat to the planet, well, then again, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you, if you can't look at that child with love and you, you're, you're so bound up in your ideological predispositions that you, you, know, you, you see them as a menace and you cannot give them, you know, uh, that love. First, my first thought is that actually once you have your child, um, it'll kick in and all of your anxieties will, if not fade away completely, then be greatly mitigated by this sudden new mission, this new purpose you have in life to have in, in your child. Um, but maybe some people won't feel that way. Maybe some people will still say, oh my God, I brought a child into this world. I'm a terrible person. My spouse is a terrible person. Uh, my child is a terrible person. And if you really do feel that way, now you probably shouldn't have a child. Don't worry, someone else will make up for you. Don't worry, because you know, here's the thing, your decision individually to make or make not a child, world population is not gonna be completely altered because of the decision you made. Now, the other thing I kind of you know, do find myself uh, wondering about here I do wonder, uh, Sonny Bunch, who we, the joke is, he's been for Washington Free Beacon and a bunch of other places, uh, writes a lot about movies. He had this rather famous essay that came out after, uh, I think it was the first, uh, not the first Avengers movie, Avengers Infinity War, about Thanos. And Thanos is trying to destroy half the universe in order to preserve its resources. He wants to wipe out half of all living creatures uh, so that the world, will, the planets and the whole solar system will not run out of resources. 
And Sonny Butch wrote this essay where he said, environmentalists make great villains because they want to make your life harder. They want to make your life miserable. And of course, lots of people hated it, but by and large, environmentalists do look at humanity as a problem. And it is a very short step from humanity is a problem and we need fewer people to supervillain them, <laughs> to basically believe that killing people is a good thing and preventing people from being born is a good thing. And China knew what it was doing with its one China policy and they're actually the good guys. And um, I think there was at least one environmental... Um, I, think, I want to say it was a work of fiction, but I'm not sure, but it really did kind of grapple with this idea that if you see humanity as a threat to the planet, if you go far enough, you end up in this moral inversion in which guys like Hitler or Milosevic or Pol Pot are good guys because they killed a lot of people and prevented them from emitting carbon and polluting the planet. And everybody who's made a breakthrough to save people, the Jonas Salks of the world, the people who developed the coronavirus vaccine, all of them are the bad guys because they're helping keep people alive. Once you've reached that point, you are around the bend and you, you're a supervillain category and you are downright evil, right? So you kind of have this, you can see this thinking and this grappling with the idea. Well, I guess the question is like, why do we want to save the planet? Well, I assume we want to save the planet for us. Because <laughs> you know, here's like, Earth's going to be around no matter what humans do. It may be a lousy place to live. It may, temperature might go up. The pollution might be high. Uh, beautiful areas might be despoiled. Air quality might be bad. Like, there, there are bad things that could happen. But Earth is going to stick around. I guess the bigger question is, will we be sticking around? So if you really want to believe in environmentalism, you should be saying, hey, we need to save the environment for us humanity, for people, that human beings are not part of. And by the way, here's the thing. It's not like deer are going to suddenly come along and develop some new great way to get carbon out of the atmosphere. It's not like frogs are going to suddenly come up with some brilliant new way uh, to create an energy efficient vehicle that runs a lot and doesn't use much fuel. All the solutions for climate change and global warming are going to come from human beings. So every time you say, oh, I'm not going to have a child, uh, because I don't want that, you know, I don't want that child to emit carbon. Okay, but what if that child turns out to be a person who invents cold fusion or some other, you know, amazing breakthrough, the cure for cancer, which is the, you know, the stereotypical example here. What if your child turns out to be great? Because trust me, no matter how much of a nincompoop I think you are, there's a really good chance your child will turn out to be somebody great. So that's my <laughs> life lesson for the day, Greg. And um, yeah, so there's not much to unpack there. Uh <laughs> Well, I mean, this whole Malthusian nonsense has been going on a long time. We have too many people to feed, I think, was the uh, original uh, uh, thing from Thomas Malthus. And uh, pretty much ever since then, the left has been looking for ways to uh, slice down the number of people who exist on this planet. And uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, the right is right. Uh, we like people. We like people to responsibly uh, procreate. It's kind of important to keep things going. I don't know if the pandemic created more mental illness, although I think it probably did, or it just exposed it a lot more than we had seen it in the past and how people and their reaction to things is just uh, beyond what we would have considered normal just a short time ago. Yeah, I mean, just to observe, look, I I've heard from criminal justice reformers who make, I think, a fairly compelling argument that uh, solitary confinement has all kinds of extraordinarily damaging uh, psychological and physiological effects on human beings. We are social creatures. We are meant to interact with others. Now, there are probably some people who believe in tough and crime on policies who say, yes, that's the point. <laughs> you know, solitary confinement is supposed to be very difficult to endure. It is a punishment and it's supposed to be, you know, but uh, we can argue about whether it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Let's just observe that for a good chunk of the year, if, you know, if, if Americans, the whole world weren't sentenced to, you know, 
quite akin to prison level solitary confinement, their ability to interact with other, others was dramatically cut down. And look, this is what keeps us going. You know, uh, it was, you know, we, we joked about how much of 2020 felt like a year full of Wednesdays and a year full of marches um, because it was, you know, we, we were, you know, we, yeah, we were still living, life was going on, but it took away the holidays. It took away the family gatherings. It took away the parties. It took away uh, happy hours and, and conferences and seeing old friends and all these things that are part of what makes life worth living. So it's not surprising that depression skyrocketed, anxiety skyrocketed, and, and all these other so terrible social effects occurred. So um, you're probably right. These, the pandemic did exacerbate these effects, but um, yeah, I have a feeling they were not necessarily, uh, their alphabet may not have gone all the way to Z beforehand. Jim, that was a lot to unpack. And no, so it, was, it, was, it was a very small suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, uh, I would uh, also hearken back to that very uh, wise book a few years ago written by Jim Garrity and Cam Edwards uh, called Heavy Lifting, that uh, the good process is to get married and then have the kids. Then they uh, have the, a chance of uh, probably not growing up in poverty, having a stable environment. And uh, if you raise your kids well, uh, our future will be will be looking brighter than uh, the, the ones who have been uh, frighteningly indoctrinated on this issue and some others in recent years. So, uh, Jim, I'm sure you'll be enthralled by Biden's speech tonight, and we'll talk all about it tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Always grateful for those five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Why won't Vice President Kamala Harris actually visit the border and see for herself what the migrant crisis looks like? I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, I'll tell you what I saw with my own eyes in Tijuana and what will keep happening until the Biden administration addresses the problem. I'll also be joined by war reporter Michael Yan, who is reporting from the jungles of Panama on the surge of migrants headed to America. Please join me. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.